Hello, and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans. In today's episode, we've got an old friend of mine, Mark Diterjani, who runs venture debt at Pacific Western Bank in Silicon Valley. He actually came down to my, uh, as a guest speaker, to speak at my class at Chapman University, where I taught a class on venture capital. And so we had real practitioners like Mark explaining how it works. So nobody better to learn about venture debt than Mark. He also talks about the importance of relationships, which I think is key, and talking about how our relationship and friendship started. We're both into venture capital and startups. We had lacrosse in common, so we started playing lacrosse together. He ended up even coaching my kids. So my twin boys were uh, learning to play not just lacrosse, but a whole bunch of other great stuff from the great coach. D. Terajani in Silicon Valley. So without further ado, let's hear Mark addressing my class at Chapman University talking about relationships and venture debt. Enjoy the episode. So let me uh, tell you guys a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Mark D. Terajani, as we found out earlier. Um, I work for Pacific Western Bank um, in the venture debt group. And my job primarily is as the tip of the spear. And I'm out working with VCs and founders and the people that influence those people to get introductions to uh, startups that just have raised capital. And then what we do is we come in and we offer venture debt. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Quick high level on my bank, we're about a $40 billion bank. We are based in Beverly Hills, California. We have a number of different uh, banking groups, community banking, we have an asset-based lending group. Um, we have a HOA uh, business. We also do real estate, short-term real estate loans to uh, rehabbers. But I work in the venture banking group. And the venture banking group was actually acquired by Pacific Western. Used to be a, a bank called Square One Bank, which was founded in about 2005 by some ex-Silicon Valley bankers who wanted to start more of a boutique firm at Silicon Valley Bank grew and became really large. And then being a team guy, I really missed being in a team environment. And so I joined Pacific Western Bank because it's a group that I worked with before. I had relationships with people that were there and that's how I got the bank there. And then what you're gonna see is this word relationships that keeps weaving through um, everything we're gonna talk about tonight. So um, Let's talk real high level. Can, can I just jump sure. in a bit? Like, I think um, some of you guys are graduating and getting serious about your job, job hunt and stuff. And I think that if you were the bot, if you were trying to build a, a badass venture debt team to start taking market share away from Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and and somebody and like 10 people tell tell you to hire the same person, Mark, because he knows everybody. I think. Mark spent, I would think, 15 to 20 years of interacting with VCs and startups and all the other people in between. Like, so almost everybody that's going to speak this class has probably met Mark. Like, John Vitti is coming. Yeah. You, met, you hung out with John. John's there over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so somebody who knows Roger everybody. Next week. Yeah, yeah. Roger Royce is coming next week. You know Roger well for a very long time. So is this important to hire somebody that that everybody knew and everybody liked, and he listens and he's cool. And when he knows everybody, he can he can solve your problem, whether it's a lacrosse situation or 
it's finding someone to buy your company or who's going to hire the person you just fired. Yeah, and that, you know, I think the network that he's talking about is something that I've built, you know, with intention over the last couple of decades. And, you know, somebody once told me early on, they said, your, your network is your net worth, right? And that always really struck me that, you know, the people that you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that it's kind of natural for me to do this, you know? My friends call me Kevin Bacon because I'm the guy that connects everybody. Um, and, you know, I've realized that, you know, that's ultimately my superpower is connecting people. And, you know, what happens when you connect people is you create momentum, you create bigger energy than existed before. You know, when I'm able to listen to a startup founder and say, you know what, you guys are a little bit early for us right now, but I know somebody that I might introduce you to that I think can help you right now. Right. So, you know, I go into every interaction when people say, hey, you want to talk to this person? I say, sure, because if I can't help them, maybe I know somebody who does. And by going into business with that kind of attitude, good things happen. Like things happen. this, it's literally on my LinkedIn profile <laughs> on like the about section. I say spend 30 percent of your time doing favors for other people. Yeah. And that means that instead of spending 100% of your time looking out for just yourself, you're spending 70%. So you're 30% down. But that 70% will be at least 2x as effective. So you're, you're, you're gunning at 1.4 when you're doing favors for 30. And you do favors for 20 years. And then like one favor could really bring in a ship. Next thing you know, you're standing here talking to Chapman's uh, entrepreneurial program. <laughs> <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> um, so, you know, relationships are kind of the context and venture debt is what I, what I do within that, right? And as Andrew's saying, you know, in the Silicon Valley and beyond, and, you know, Silicon Valley used to be a geography. I think now it's more kind of a mindset than it is actually the geography, although there's certainly a lot of, you know, the people still in the valley. Um, but it's, 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 it's uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that if you know people and you can bring people together, um, you know, you're going to be successful. So let's talk a little bit about the high end of it. Because, you know, what we do is we lend money to startups that are losing money, right? And so unlike a mortgage lender who says, oh, you got this house, that house is worth this much, I'm going to lend you this much against that house and if you don't pay me back. I got this asset underneath it that I can claim and I can get paid back. What we do is a lot different. It's part science and it's part art and it's a lot in between, right? So, you know, we work with companies that are all stages. And on the slide here, you'll see we kind of have revenue on one axis and the company evolution on the other axis. We work with companies that are pre-revenue, that haven't raised money yet. We give them free banking with the whole idea that the more promising startups that we can get into our bank and we're the incumbent, that's going to be better for our numbers down the road when we start lending. And there, there you're just talking about a bank account. Yeah, just a bank so account. We're not talking about depositing money. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take your money. Yeah, it's not a huge... We, we look at the world as being made up of depositors and borrowers, right? And at that point, they're just depositors. 
right? They've raised a million bucks. They've raised 1.5. They're going to move it over. We're going to help them, again, focusing on the relationships, focusing on who we can connect them to. How do we get them to another round? Maybe it's somebody I should introduce to Andrew. Maybe this is somebody that his fund might be interested in, right? So um, that's what we do there. We want to get them to the next level. So then we start working with companies that are in the early stages of revenue, 1.5 or so, you know, one to five or so. And we start lending to those companies. Once the company's raised about eight, nine million or so at this point, we might start tagging on some debt after that, particularly if they have VCs that we're excited. So, so let me jump in. So, so, so if the company's raised five million and they've got some revenue, that's too early for venture debt? Well, we'll get to that side. Okay. Yeah, because that, that comes down to the combination of those different aspects that I was talking about. Yeah, is, we, yeah, we asked a very difficult question of when is it a bad idea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if, if you're, you know, not, you've only raised five million bucks and you're burning, you know, 200, 300 grand a month, you know, you got what, 15 months of, of, of runway left. We're going to be a little bit nervous about getting into something like that. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, if you look a little bit further, it kind of talks about some of the things that we do. Um, acquisition financing, the formula lines, the non-formula lines. We'll get into that a little bit more. But the whole point is that we work with companies throughout the whole, um, their whole life cycle. From when they're starting off at the beginning to when they go through IPO and beyond. I mean, we're the bank for companies like DraftKings. We're the bank for companies like, which was nice when they spat last year, you know, brought like $1.2 billion into the bank, right? Um, Headspace is another one that's a, one that I'm kind of uh, excited about, right? So we work with a lot of cool companies that are doing a lot of cool things. <clears throat> so this is what we were talking about just now. And, and this is how we underwrite venture debt, okay? Because when, when a company comes to us and say, hey, we just raised 20 million bucks and we want to get some, we want to get some uh, debt on top of that, we're going to look at a few things. We look at the equity sponsors, meaning who are the VCs? Do we know these guys? Have we worked with these people before? You know, are they reputable? Do they have money that they intend to invest later on into the company to do a follow-on investment? Very important to us. Do we have a relationship with these people? Do we know because everything's great, you know, as things continue to go like this, but sometimes things happen and we got to work things out. That's where we have to have that relationship and that trust. Or, or, or what, what kind of due diligence do they do? Like there's some yeah. people that are famous for doing no deal, no DD whatsoever. And right. so you probably, you probably have to do your own DD if that's the case. Yeah. We're other ones, you know, that they're like, well, if it got through that guy, they've microscoped the entire exactly. body. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, Canaan's bringing us a deal, we know that, that they've been very thorough and we don't have to go into number six there, the product, right? You know, we look at revenue. Is there revenue in the company? And if so, what is it and how fast is it growing, right? We look at how much cash on hand that they have, you know, how much fresh equities come in. We look at the RML, what we call RML, remaining monthly liquidity, otherwise known as cash burn, right? How much money do they have in the bank and how long is that going to last them? If it's less than 18 months for us, we start getting a little bit antsy. That becomes bridge territory for us. So that's a very important one. We look at the management team. 
Who are the people that we're actually lending the money to? Have they done this before? Are they experienced? Do we know them? Are we beginning to build a relationship with them? You know, we have a, a, a company that came on as a depositor. They didn't want to do debt quite yet, but we're thinking they're gonna. Guess what we did for the guy this past Wednesday night? Found out he was a Lakers fan. Hey, let's go watch the Lakers play the Utah Jazz, and why don't we get the second row underneath the basket? So he's like, I like these guys. This is pretty good, right? I mean, that's just, it's listening, because he mentioned the Lakers. It's like, oh, Lakers, want to go? Yeah, all right. It's also worth saying that you're in a competitive space. Yeah, we're in a very competitive space, and, and, and we need to, again, separate ourselves by the relationship that we're building. We're not product people, so we don't really dive into the product that much. And again, we take our equity sponsors lead on that, that they've done the diligence and that they understand that a little bit better. You know, when we get on the life science side of things and I do development there, but I don't do a lot of the underwriting there. Um, it's a little bit different when you're looking at drug development or, or some of those other things that take a lot longer to, uh, to get to marketplace, right? So there we'll probably dig in a little bit more on that. Um, any questions so far? Any thoughts? Yes. Um, do you like, do you go into every industry or do you like choose and pick which ones like you kind of do? Because I remember professor was like, I know I'm not going to do invest into biotech, but do you go into like every industry like that you see or do, are you staying away from clear things? That's a good question. I mean, in our bank, we have a technology practice and we have a life science practice, right? Because those are two different things, right? So within life science and within technology, we'll pretty much look at everything, right? What we love and what all the everybody loves is recurring revenue businesses, SaaS businesses, right? We'll lend to those kinds of businesses all day if they have the metrics that we're looking for, right? Consumer is something that we might shy away from a little bit, right? Because consumers are fickle. You know, something's hot one time and suddenly it's not hot anymore. How do you judge for that, right? So we stick primarily into the technology side, SaaS, AI is big now, FinTech we're doing a lot of. We're doing a lot of robotics um, and a lot of uh, AI, did I say AI? AI stuff. So um, those are really where we're focused right now. But consumer B, all those others, A. Right? But can I ask a question, Mark? Like if you see a, let's say biotech, so basically no revenue, they got a long way to go, but they just closed 60 million. Maybe you don't give it the ratio on top of 60 that you would give to a SaaS company that's generating and growing MRR, but you might give them something with the knowledge of like, there's going to be a debt equity swap if you don't pay me. Yeah. So I could maybe do 6 million on top of 60. Like there's maybe some number that yeah, you're happy could, to move money. Definitely. We could definitely get there. And again, that probably comes to the investors, right? Okay. You put 60 in but are you guys gonna follow on when they've spent this 60 and now they've got through that first level of FDA clearance, they gotta go one more, are you gonna come in with following capital, right? And that's one of the things that we're always asking and that's how we might get out of that particular situation. And, and like to look forward to next week with Roger Royce on legals, if you've got venture debt, if you have 6 million on top of a 60 million equity raise, if the company were just getting fire sailed off, you get paid out before the equity. Yep. But what happens if uh, a big VC does the famous 3X liquidation preference through a note after the 60 million? He is subordinate to you? 
Because yeah. you've got we're, this, we're, we're the senior lender. All you've got this very long covenants of yeah. We're always we're always going to be the senior lender. So you're just after the IRS and nobody ahead of you but the IRS. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you know, oftentimes we'll go into a deal where there might be some debt that's already in the company that you know has to subordinate subordinate to, to us. Yeah. Hi, if a company has no revenue and you care less about the product, like what would make you want to invest that debt into a company that has no revenue? That's a great question. So if you look at these six things, forget number six for now. Of those five things, if you have good equity sponsors, you got some revenue, you got cash on hand, you know, your burns, your burns under control, and you got a great management team, you got five out of five, odds are we'll lend to you. Right, so let's take revenue out of that equation. Now you got four out of five, right? How good are those other four in comparison to the fact that there isn't revenue there? So we do lend to companies that are pre-revenue, right? But again, that's gonna be the understanding that, well, these guys have raised 10 million now and that's gonna get them through the next 18 months. And we know that they're gonna do another raise and we've had, you know, we do ICRs, investor credit reviews, and we talk to the VCs as a part of our due diligence, and we're saying, are you guys set? Do you guys have dry powder reserve to follow on for this? Um, so that's, you know, we can get over those things. If you got four out of five of these, maybe we can do something. If you got three out of five, you're probably going to get an introduction from me to a private lender. So when you say growth rate for the revenue, are you talking about its historical growth rate or are you talking about a projected or both? Combination of the two, really, you know? Um, you know, one, we can put money on because it's historical. Two, we take with a grain of salt, um, but projections are real important to how we look at stuff too. You know, because we sometimes we get audited financials, sometimes we don't. When we do, that's great. But when we look at those plans, we got to take it with a grain of salt. Oftentimes, you know, we'll put a covenant in to that plan, right? And a covenant is a restriction that a company has to overcome or has to abide by to get the debt, right? So they might be saying, you know, we're going to do 10 million bucks in revenue next year. We're going to grow from one to 10. And we'll say, okay, well, we're going to give you this loan, but you got to hit 70% of that number that you're telling us. And if you don't hit 70%, we're not going to give you access to that money, right? So, you know, we, we, and that's the art and science part of it, right? Because it's science is, hey, this is the historicals, but the art is how much do we, you know, believe ultimately what they're saying and how we get comfortable with that is talking to customers, it's talking to the investors and it's talking to the team. Cool. Good questions. Um, you know, we can walk through this real quick. This is a pretty, you know, dense slide, but this kind of shows our process. And really, I just kind of wanted you guys to see what that process is. We kind of have that initial meeting and the due diligence. We'll issue a term sheet. And in our process, our term sheets or our expressions of interest, we have to go through our credit committee. So we have a credit committee that approves every deal. So our guys come in, we write everything up, and then we go and we present to committee. Once the committee approves everything and we're signed, we go into legal documentation, then we get into closing, and then we fund the loan. The whole thing, if everybody's cooperating 
and the lawyers aren't taking too much time, typically we can do that in about six to eight weeks from the initial meeting to there being money in the bank. But oftentimes that stretches out for a long, a wide variety of reasons. What's been your experience? What do you? Well, I wanted to ask how many different venture debt term sheets are hitting the target <laughs> in a deal that you're closing? There used to be one, Comdisco. Yeah. Then it, then it went to SVB and Comdisco blew up. And then there was like 10 different venture debt providers that all had at one point worked at Comdisco. So, so we so now there are many. Yeah. Or, or, you know, there was once one, and then now there's a bunch. We see SVB in every deal we do. Every deal. Okay. So and they bank, they used to bank 70%. Yeah. They probably still so they're willing to lose money on certain uh service offerings to keep you just banking your money. Yep. They just like seeing you raise a hundred million and that crap is in a bank account. Yep. Absolutely. They're lending it out to some smaller guy. That's you know what SVB a number is all about. Right, because ultimately you become a number there. That's right. That's right. That's right. The service you get off of them will not like get your kid into Chapman or something. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, but how long have you seen? Um, I tend to think that venture debt has the ability to move rather quickly. And they hear a lot of things, they know a lot of people they can pick up and back channel. And so like, without asking you the question, they ask 10 people that they know yeah, yeah. about you. And they get assurances of like, how many months are, are the pay, what's the payback period? And how much am I at risk of getting at least two thirds of the payback? Yeah. And I'm running a risk that they don't raise the next round. So worst thing, I'm out 24 payments, or I get 24 payments back at a 36 or something. Which is better than the VC who lost it all in that yep. same deal. Yep. Yep. But, but I'll let you. I'll let you go. Yeah. I'll let you keep running. Cool. Whoops. All right. Uh, real quick, term loans. We do two kind of loans. We do term loans and we do revolvers. Term loans are basically loans where we're we're just giving somebody a credit line in essence. Okay. So those consist of what the the, the uh, commitment size will be. Okay, what the maturity is, and usually our maturity is going to be about 24 to 48 months, depending on uh, you know what's going on. And if companies hit certain milestones, then we might do some extensions there. The interest rates recently have been pretty low, right? The deals we've been doing over the last year or so have been in the high threes, maybe hitting four. Although we just did a deal that was a five percent deal, so maybe that's showing that things are beginning to take up from an interest rate which, perspective. Which by the way, like kind of growing up around venture debt being thrown into a relatively small percentage of equity deals, 8% eight, 8 was common yeah. and you would see 13. 13 was a real number. So like if a high yield, you know, junk bond kind of startup, they're getting 13. Yeah. And so venture debt guys are like, look, we've actually got our money back after X number of months. So the risk I'm taking is not so bad if that interest rate is, is high. Yeah. Do you think because of rising inflation and like the Fed, like seeing like they're gonna raise interest rates, we may see numbers starting to move back towards those higher percentages or it's, uh, it's, it's Yeah, it's, I mean, it's already happening. And you know, what the, the numbers that you're talking about too, that's what private debt's taken on, right? So we're a bank, right? So we take your money and then we lend it out. So we are legally bound not to take too much risk, 
So that's why oftentimes I'll see somebody say, yeah, doesn't fit our rather small target, but I can introduce you to a private debt lender who has a much bigger target, and that might be the person who can help you get that capital. But you're going to pay a lot more for it than you're going to pay for us. And even in today, I mean, we're seeing some of those private debt guys doing, you know, 10 to 15% right now. Oh, you are. Okay, so those yeah. numbers, those numbers yeah. are around. Okay, yeah. but that's, those are much riskier deals. Yeah. So if someone can't pay back their loan, do you take ownership of the company? Like, is that the collateral? Yeah. So we 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 take a lien on all the IP of the company, right? Um, and that's you know our last resort to get paid. Um, usually, it never gets to that um, because oftentimes. Uh, we'll see the VCs come in and, and, you know, pump a little bit of life in there. But if they don't, that's when things can get a little bit uh, tricky. And that's when you hope you have a good relationship with your client and your client hopes they have a good relationship with the bank. It's like one of my colleagues says, you know, 99% of the things that you really negotiate down in these deals only happen 1% of the time. But when they do, you want to have that straight down ready. And that's Roger's field to have all that done. All right. Um, so we charge a facility fee. We'll charge a fee to set everything up. We don't have prepayment fees. Some of our customers do. We don't have an unused fee, which sets us apart in the, in the uh, marketplace too, because some banks will charge you if you don't draw down on the loan. Right, so you give them the commitment. If they don't draw down, they're going to charge you. Right, um, those other ones. Well, skip those. That's not supposed to be there. Uh, the formula revolvers. Formula revolvers are basically based on revenue. Right, um, and 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 you know, if if a company is doing a million dollars in monthly revenue, recurring revenue (MRR), we might give them five, six, seven times that particular number, right? As a credit line. We just did one deal, which for the, was huge for us because it's the first time we did one time ARR, which means basically 12X MRR. So that was a $65 million deal that we did. Um, that's the first time that we kind of put ourselves out there and said, we're gonna give them that much money. So, so that's interesting. So, so, if you look at it, if if ARR is 1.2 and MRR is 100K, yep. and they've got decent VCs and they're closing around now, what is your revenue basis? Like forgetting the size of the round. I, I often think of like whatever the round was, there's gonna be a certain percentage of that could be how much you lend. Yeah, yeah. And then if they're like, if they have a high burn rate or no revenue, you know, what's the runway look like? You know, you're sizing into it, but in general, $5 million round could get 2 million in venture debt. Yeah, yeah, and we'll look, we can talk about those in the case studies a okay. little bit more. Okay, Because right? typically what we're doing is we're taking a term loan and we're pairing it with some sort of revolver to get to the total um, amount of debt that the, the client's looking for. But the company's growing fast and it's got 60 million of ARR. So lend it sixty million, and it's got equity VCs in it. Mm -hmm. That's not a crazy risk. No, if it's doubling revenue or no, going over percent, and this is one of those companies that's doing that. 
you know? Right. I mean, they just raised 80 million bucks and, you know, probably sometime at the beginning of 23, they'll go out for their C round. It could be <laughs> twice that. So 60 you know? million of entry debt on 80 sounds spicy, but not if they've got 60 million of ARR. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we expect that 60 million AR to be close to 100 this year, right? So we feel protected in that. You know, the, the, the banker ease, the, the jargon is, you know, we got comfortable with that by being in, that's like, you always hear bankers, how did you get comfortable with that? Well, we got comfortable with that because they have this revenue and they got the, so that's how we get our comfort. All right, let's go to a couple case studies. So, you know, these are just some deals that, you know, I'm, I'm being generic, obviously, I'm not telling you who they are, but this was a um, SaaS platform that we were working with that uh, worked in the healthcare uh, market. COVID became a tailwind for them. And you might've heard a lot of people talk about COVID was either a headwind or a tailwind, right? For some companies, COVID was crushing. For other companies, think Zoom, think Peloton, COVID was a very good thing for them as far as their businesses go. This was one of those businesses. So they had grown their ARR from one to 9 million over the year, right? That's pretty good growth. That's pretty good growth. It was a best of breed company. We liked them. Their churn was low. Okay, you guys know what churn is? Basically how many of your uh, cohorts that you bring onto your platform at any given time are coming off, you know? And first the people that are coming off, okay? Um, we like the SaaS metrics, which are good, their revenue, their CAC, all these other things that we look at. Um, they had just raised, uh, what was it? Yeah, about 55 million. They had a great management team. Okay. They had about 18 months of cash before they got to our debt. Okay. Um, and they wanted some venture debt to enhance their initiatives and to grow, to get to the next round. So a lot of times people use venture debt to say, okay, if I can, you know, use this bit of debt for my working capital and I can get another three, four, five months of sales going, product development, whatever it might be, then when I get to the end of that time period, I can have a greater valuation than I would have before I got there. Okay, so oftentimes we're seeing people use it for extended runway and that's one of the things they want. So they wanted 15 to 18 million in debt, okay? So what did we do? We, we put together a solution that was a hybrid of term debt at 10, MMR line of credit, which was 7 million. So the total we got together was 17 million, okay? So oftentimes, as you say here, they, we didn't give them that 17 million right away, right? So we gave them the 10, the MRR, we were gonna, they were gonna have to grow into that a little bit over time. And on the term, what's the payment schedule? Typically it's a 18 to 18 month draw period, okay, 12 to 18, um, meaning that that's when you can use the money, that's when you can draw the money. It's also the interest only period. Then we'll move into an amortization period, which is typically about 24 to 48 months. 48 is kind of pushing it, but it's really 24 to 36. So the whole thing's gonna be about a four year deal, right? Um, but oftentimes what we see is, you know, because when you're raising venture capital, typically you're raising for two years of operations, right? So if we got a four-year deal out there and they're raising for two years, odds are they're going to raise another round. And when companies raise other rounds, 
we re renegotiate it. We do a whole different thing. And we'll see that in, in a couple of these. Um, so basically, we allowed them to scale MRR. And as they got more MRR, we gave them more debt. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that we didn't have in this deal is warrants. And if you talk to these guys, you know, a little bit. All right. You're right there. What, explain what warrants are. What are, what are warrants? Anybody? Warrants? Yeah, go ahead. Um, they're kind of like options, so, but instead of having like 180 days or six months out, it's more of a five to six year period. Um, companies can call back the warrants, but also for the retail investors, you invest it, invest it publicly. So it's kind of like options, but more like your process. Yeah, I think the, the simplistic, the most simplistic way to think about it is that, does, ever, does anybody not know what stock options are? I don't think I knew what stock options were at one point. So a stock option is you get hired to work at Facebook and the share price is, like, I don't even know what their share price is, but it's called $100. And so you have an option to buy the shares at $100 over the next four years or, or forever, really. And so if the share price goes from $100 to $1,000, you can, and you've got X number of these options, you have the option to buy shares at $100 and instantly sell it at the market price of 900. So you're making an 800 spread per share. Now, if you're working on Facebook, those shares are probably not going up. So, you know, those options are deep out of the money, not deep right. in the money, right, right, right. you know? Now, so, so that's what, and so part of how you attract someone to quit their job at Goldman Sachs or IBM and work for your crappy little startup <laughs> with like a very little salary or, or benefits is the stock options that you're offering them. So you're offering them ownership basically in the business. And when you see the stock market crash and people were all issued stock options at these very high prices, they're, they're deep out of the money. And small technical thing, and God help you next week when Roger just really puts you to death on this stuff <coughs> as a lawyer, is that when it's privately held, they're called stock options. When they're publicly traded, it's Restrict, restricted stock units, RSUs. RSUs, yeah. Yeah, so there are RSUs once you're in the public, in the public world. So back to warrants. Warrants, basically, same exact thing as stock options, but you're not an employee, so you're not qualified to participate in the ESOP employee stock option pool or program. So they 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 assign like five percent or fifteen percent of the whole company for ESOP employee stock option pool. And if you dig deeper, some guy like Mark's like, I want to, you know, work at your company, but I'm not going to give up my lacrosse team I own on the side and all this complicated stuff this guy's got in his life. So he's never going to be a full-time W-2 employee, but he wants the stock options. So they, those are warrants. So warrants are basically stock options for people that are not employed by the company. And so when a greedy vicious venture debt guy comes across like, I'm so cool, I'll stay up all night with you. In reality, he's getting paid somehow, and he's not going to get uh, qualified for the ESOP. So they want an option to get equity in the thing without buying it now. So not only do they lend you money and get interest, interest income on that with a spread, but they're getting an equity kicker in the form of warrants. Right, which covers us in the case that Nobody ever draws down on our on our debt, right? Well, I think that I think that if you go through life lending money to lots of cool venture back startups in the 
global Silicon Valley, you're, 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 you've got people paying you every month and you got money going out every month and there's a nice spread on it, but you feel a little stupid when you've been lending money to Jack Dorsey at his last four companies and never made anything on the equity that went up. Yep. Like you're the reason that the guy was able to hire another 10,000 people and yet you never got any actual venture capital equity. You're just like Citibank on the corner. Yeah. And we had, we had a great year as far as warrants went last year. Um, and the cool thing about that is that, you know, it becomes this pool of money in the bank. And at our bank, what they do is they split that up. Now, the bank obviously takes their piece, but what's left is split up among the people that have worked on that deal. From the guy like me who brought the deal in to the people that are doing the accounting for the deal to the portfolio management people, right? So that's kind of one of the things that in my business and my bank, we work for, right? Because if I can get that you know, good deal in that's got some warrants on it and I stick around long enough, you know, that might be my little incentive to stick around. Right? Also, I think that everything is always changing, especially in this business. Like what's a good valuation now? What was an interest rate in ancient times or now? And next year is that uh, the attitude of the high level board people at Pacific Western Bank was probably like very risk averse compared to someone like me. Like I'm trying to talk them into oh, they're definitely going to extend that runway. Look at what's happening. They will get funded. You're fine with a four-year term. And they're like not buying that at all. But then all of a sudden, when the equity kicker of these warrants in a good year brings in a lot of money, they're like, let's give Mark a little more you know, of a leash to do what yeah. he wants to do. Because yeah. no, my God, these equities in that Dorsey deal is paid for yeah. the no. program for the next seven years. Definitely. But you know, warrants are kind of like a lightning rod. Um, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who don't want warrants as part of their deal, right? And, you know, they don't want the bank to be on their cap table, right? And so we offer an option of a success fee, right? So we might say, okay, in the event of a change of ownership, an acquisition, or an IPO, if it's for under 500 million, we get 500 grand. If it's over 500 million, we get a million bucks or whatever the numbers are, right? So it's an option that we have to say, hey, well, you don't want warrants, we'll offer you, you can choose this, right? So something that we do that's a little bit different than some of the other guys. Do you call those ratchets these days or? We call it a success fee. Makes, you know, everybody successful. It costs money. All right, case study B. Uh, this was an autonomous driving vehicle. And what was a little bit different about this company is that, you know, not unlike a SaaS company, because a SaaS company, there's not a lot of assets there. When you're dealing with companies that actually make things, hardware companies, vehicle companies, there is, uh, you know, there's assets in the company. We can lend against those a little bit differently than we can just against cash flows and things. And so this was a company that was growing very fast. They raised a big amount of, of capital, but it was an A round and they were still building stuff, right? So they weren't quite getting to the revenue. So we worked out a term loan along with an equipment lease that was leaning against the equipment that they were building. And so we were able to advance them money off of the equipment that they had with that asset underneath it. So a little bit different for us because 
Oftentimes we don't get that, but we have a partner within our bank who can do that kind of equipment leasing. So we work together with them to put together this particular deal. Um, and as it changed and grew, we changed with it. And the VCs probably love that because they don't yeah. want to see their check burn up to like deposit for 18 months rent and renting an right. apartment in the old days. They like that debt. So this is a company called, uh, this is one I can actually talk about. It's an old one though. The Real Real. Anybody ever heard about The Real Real? Yeah, cool company. They went public, right? This is a company we started working with when they were in their A stage and worked with them all through their life cycle until they went public. And they're still a client of our bank. We ended up lending them, you know, over the course of the time, um, you know, 25 at one point, we brought it up again. They raised about, I think it was 250 million or so. And we just, as they raised and as they grew, we just renegotiated our deals and we gave them bigger lines and bigger lines, right? So, you know, we can get up to in our bank about 70 million or so, and we can be the only bank doing that. If we get into deals where the asks are bigger than that, then we start to syndicate loans, which means we get together with other banks and we partner and each, but each bank takes a little piece of the loan. So we might be doing a hundred million dollar deal. We got four banks in there. You know, one bank's for easy math, everybody's doing 25 kind of thing, right? So um, again, an example of how we stay with companies and work through. And again, that goes back to that relationship, right? Because here's a bank that, you know, started with, a, we started with them early, we grew with them, we knew their needs, we understood what they were needed, and we continued to give them the capital that they needed to succeed right up through the IPL. And there were warrants on that deal too. So that's a good one. How do you calculate warrant coverage in the modern world when they're there? Um, it's usually a percentage of the uh, the total liability that we've, we've given to the company, right? So it could be anywhere. I mean, it's getting tighter. Man. I mean, I saw what you had in your book there, about 6 to 8% or something like that. That was written by Todd Fisarelli of Relly. I mean, that's a name I can never get right. You know, <laughs> you know the guy, right? Yeah, yeah. But now, I mean, we're, it's, it's like 1%-ish, you know, give or take, or, you know, it's it, it's pretty low now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Because there's there's so much more awareness of that. I think, you know, there used to be a time where you really didn't have a choice, right? And now there's so much more choice in the marketplace. It's kind of driven that down. I think the the equity VCs were were insanely uneducated about venture debt. Yeah. Like even Bill Draper, Tim Draper's father, told me like 20 years ago, never ever allow venture debt ever into any of your companies. And he's trying to school me and give me the best advice he can grandpa right, give right, me. Right, right, right. Was never allowed. I'm like, isn't there maybe even for tax to optimize a little bit of and he was like, never. He's like, you should never increase their burn of like, if I fund you for 18 months, I don't want to see all of a sudden you got 14 months because you've now got to not just pay payroll, but you're just paying a bank. He's just against it. On the other hand, he kind of wants to give you the full 7 million and not just give you five after all the work he did and see 2 million go to a fast mover. How fast is your process? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, numbers can get pretty kooky. And, you know, we did a deal recently that they raised 50 million, we gave them 40 on top of it. So now they got 90 million, but they've only given up 50 of equity, right? And, you know, maybe the VCs don't like that part either, right? Because they want to get a little more 
pump into the company, get a little more piece of it. So it's a it's an interesting option, and and you know, I know you're very illuminated on the uh, the process. Well, I, I'm like the answer is it depends. Yeah. So like the answer is it depends with me, as opposed to Bill Draper saying the answer is no, always. I mean that's the cool thing about what we do too is every deal is different. You know, every of those five little pieces we were talking about, every deal is different. There's no real cookie cutter stuff coming out. It's kind of fun. Back to the question about like options and warrants. Um, are you only making money if the stock price goes up, or are you still making whatever it is above zero if it goes down? Like if you only if it goes up because yeah. it has a strike price. Okay, got it. So it's as simple as that. But it's kind of like, you know, Mark and Andrew going to a bar together and fund a deal where I'm the equity and this guy's the venture debt and the company goes to hell. He's the one like in the old days would grab the servers or something. And, you know, like now you've AWS, so you know, you've got very little but the IP now to grab, you know. But if it, if it goes up, he's in the money and I'm in the money. If it goes down, he probably got most of his money out of the deal yeah. on the payments already. And if you add in the the spread of his interest rate, he might've gotten all his money out and he was just in gravy icing land of profit. Yeah. Well, I'm really sucking it. Gotcha. And we don't have to exercise either. But, 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 and I'll tell a quick story. I'll get to these questions, but like, there's a buddy, or, or I'll let you finish. <laughs> Sorry. No, go ahead. Tell the story. Well, like, like Ross Algren is a friend of mine. He's like one of these, there's London is filled with Americans that have moved over there and they're like very aggressive than the very polite Brits. And he founded, um, it was European Venture Partners. They changed the name to Kraos Capital. And I think he may still have 50% of the entire European Union, UK market for venture debt. And they're not a bank. So they're, they just like move really fast, top up everybody. So the number of deals you can get into per month or per year is somewhat limited as, as a VC, where he just knows everybody, he's got a team, they're in everything. If anything hits and becomes the unicorn of Poland or whatever, he's got an equity kicker. It's like I'm buying Ethereum all day at 100. When it goes to 50,000, I'm there. And if it goes down, well, I got maybe the entire 100 back, or at the worst, I got two thirds of it. I can I can service new loans because every month I'm like USAA, all these people paying their premium. It's pretty nice. Yes, up there. Um, I was just gonna ask. Um, I don't know how like this question is, but with um, raising interest rates and the stock market, like essentially almost like all the companies I see are the stocks are down like at least five percent. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, is that deter like startup from wanting to go? Um, public and does that make them want to raise capital in another way, which is not to go public or, you know, like share, have investors like buy them out because, you know, with the restricted cash flows, they probably don't want to invest as much as Yeah, well, so, I mean, so far the markets are, you know, slowing down a bit. I mean, the valuations are going down, uh, but there's so much dry powder out there right now that there's going to continue to be venture capital in the companies and the VCs need to get some sort of exit, right? So is that gonna be a SPAC? Is that gonna be an IPO? Is that gonna be an acquisition? You know, tough to say. I would say that um, if interest rates are going to go up. Yeah, no and doubt. so 
the, the cost of venture debt money will get more expensive. However, if you are, we talked about this last week of discounting future cash flows on what is a DCF, that um, if you're discounting what the expected cash flows are next year to today, and you're discounting the next five years, really going beyond three, five years in the venture capital world is like moronic. But if you were to, if you were to go forward theoretically of five or 10 years forward, and the, 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 the I, the interest rate in your DCF is bigger, then those future cash flows are worth less today. So, you know, what's worse, paying up for venture debt? I mean, it's getting more expensive to raise equity. It's getting more expensive to borrow money from venture debt providers right now. But they're both getting more expensive at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So the result is the size of the rounds are getting a little bit smaller than they were last summer. And they're still selling 20% of the company. Yeah, what's gonna be interesting to, is what's gonna be interesting for us to track because in this recent market, you know, the vast majority of the debt that we commit is not used, right? So we're making these big commitments to companies, but they're not drawing down on the debt because there's enough equity out there right now to, to keep them floating, keep them running. It's gonna be interesting, interesting to see as the market changes, do we start seeing more and more of our clients drawing down on that debt? So that's gonna be an interesting, that's kind of a, something that we track a little bit. If you're a private venture debt firm, people not drawing down on debt that you've got sitting idly not working is a problem, right? And that's where they, they, they charge for that. Whereas if you're like, if you have a big venture debt machine running, like it's big, you have a lot of numbers, it's a bit like mortgage-backed securities. You lend money to one grandmom for her mortgage and she defaults, you're in big trouble. You buy a thousand grandmoms together and you have a mortgage-backed security and now you have derivatives and it's like, you, you, you can't lose. I think to some extent, they're getting their interest rate. They have equity kickers on some and they're buying lotto tickets, albeit smaller than the VC. There's to some extent you cannot lose. If you also are motivated to actually keep their bank accounts and give mortgages to guys like me. You know, they have a whole bunch of different like Disney spoke revenue streams. They got the theme park, the movies, the merch, like they have the video game. All of a sudden they've got a whole, you know, Disney spoke thing that they're living off of, which makes it very hard for the single point solution guy to yeah. compete with, you know, on that. Wait, wait, do we have a question over here before this one or? Uh, okay, was, okay. Was, you were, okay. Yeah. Um, I just had a question. What's the difference between issuing warrants and giving equity? Okay. So you can get equity as a founder. All right. And if, if you and I found a company together, we go 50, 50, or you have 70 and I have 30, whatever. There's, we have no tax liability at this time. Okay. If we then hire everyone in the second row here as employees, because we raise a lot of venture capital and venture debt, if you just gift them equity, okay, the equity has a 409A valuation, like there's an actual legal accounting valuation. And if I give you $10 million worth of stock, you know, you might start loving California less than Texas when you have to pay real money in this calendar year for having received equity in a company that very well might be worth nothing. So the way Roger Royce will get around that, our lawyer coming next week, is that you give them an option 
to buy equity at a strike price. And if it's a W-2 full-time employee, he qualifies for the stock option pool, the employee stock option pool, ESOP. So I hit him with lots of things that are eventually yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then um, if you are, if you say, I can't be a W-2 because I'm like taking my Porsche and everything and my, you know, my tax returns, my expense every, my mother's birthday dinner, then you're going to get warrants in the business. And you got the exact same number of shares with an option to buy it at the exact same strike price. And as CEO, if your valuation's too high, he's like, look, dude, I'm not stupid. You're giving me an option to buy shares that this is a hundred million dollar valuation, hundred million, you have no revenue. This is worthless. We've got to get to a billion before I have a $9 spread on these 30,000 shares. And so you're like, damn it, I want a lower valuation so I can issue a legitimate legal strike price that will motivate this smart, like Silicon Valley sophisticated engineer who's got like, you know, Wharton MBA roommates to let me hire the guy. And five offers. So when the stock market went down and all these uh, venture-backed companies in the Valley and around the world had raised money at 47X revenue, because that's the same thing Zoom was getting, they're all of a sudden like, how do we reprice our stock down so we can offer in the money options. And so option warrants, same thing, right? Um, and that's a, that's an issue. And you've got a bunch of VCs that were like, well, I said I invested in this thing. I invested at superhuman at 8 million. Now it's at 2 billion. If Rural's trying to lower 2 billion so we can hire people, that makes me look bad because I'm going out to raise another fund. And I'm like, hey, you make a 15X if you invested in my fund. And all of a sudden I brought down my valuations and so my performance looks weird. So anyway, there's people on different sides of the table all pushing you in a lot of different directions. If you're the CEO and you understand this, that's like the angel and the devil. Do it, don't do it. <laughs> we have a question over here. Um, you had said that a lot of the companies you get ventured at to don't actually draw down on that debt. So does that, if are warrants like set up so if they don't draw down on the debt, the warrant will still get paid to you if the company grows big enough or if the company grows big enough, are they usually already drawing yeah, down the, on that debt? The warrant's based on the commitment, not what they actually draw down. So even if they don't use it all, it doesn't matter. We still get the warrant, yeah. So it's a perfect world. You're getting free options to buy shares if it goes up and you never even put money at risk or the bulk of it. That's a great deal for the venture debt person. Definitely. Um, so when an employee has warrants or options, how like do they determine when to sell those? And at the point when they do, what keeps them engaged in the company? Like, why would they want to keep doing it? You know, this makes me think we should do like a real podcast with a few, like a CEO yeah. and like someone like a Roger and talk about all the dynamics around um, options, you know, options, warrants, basically same thing. Um, yeah, and, and, and RSUs. Ask the question one more time. Yes, I like promise. Employee has stock options. When do they sell? Yeah, when do they sell? And when they do sell, why would they want to keep working for the company? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful question. So, did you want to take it or? No, go ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, Derek Prudian was a venture partner at Morgan Stanley Venture Partners, then became a general partner at More David Out, big, big, big multi billion dollar fund. And then he joined the Founders Club when we first met with his equity in Lens something. It was eventually acquired by Apple. It's like your camera in the Apple. 
there's all the CIA stuff they were doing. It's terrible what was really going on there. And um, he was the founder of the company. And because he was a former lifelong VC, he put himself on a four-year vesting option for his own equity. And he somehow came in after the original Genius Laboratory founder. So he um, had all options. And then when his options had fully vested after four years, he thought, all right, well, I've already got my plantation in Hawaii, which he does. And he's got his place in Santa Cruz. He's like, well, what am I doing here? So he appointed someone else as CEO and he figured I'm fully vested. And um, so there's no reason for me to stay there anymore. Turned out, dynamics changed. That little, little Hitler did a management buyout and like bought out everybody and he somehow went to zero. So like lesson learned there is don't leave this person in your house and think they're not gonna go and screw your stuff up. Right. You know what I mean? If you really wanna see it through, and like Steve Jobs has like publicly said in his book, like I hate these kind of people. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I love Derek Prudian. I think it's amazing, but he's very much of a venture mindset of like diversified across his own startups, even as the founder. To ask the question of when you sell, so the the, the a tough thing that used to be hard, it's getting much better now. It's the world is evolving sometimes in a good space, even if the politicians look like they're all getting worse. Is that Let's say that you take a job working at my venture back startup. So I'm the CEO. I put you on a three, four year vesting schedule. So you have an option to buy like 1% of the company as a relatively not the most senior guy in the world over four years. So if you get fired or quit in the first 12 months, none of your shares vested. If you can stick it out for 12 months, then 25% on a four year have vested. So if you voluntarily leave or get fired, you can exercise your option to buy 25% of your 1% allocation in the business, but you've got something like 90 days to come up with the actual cash to buy those shares at the strike price. And at the time that you're getting shit canned and fired, you know, you might not be feeling like I want to give this little 22 year old and you're in your forties like a check for $130,000 because you just canned you. He's like, yeah, no one over 30 at this company. And, you know, so it's an emotional thing. And there's like, even like, do you have the money to come up with $130,000 to buy that 25% that vested at the time that you're pushed out of the company? Well, you know, David Blumberg helped raise money for this, like, I forget the name of it. It was like, just got shit canned, call us.com. And they were like, if you don't have the money to exercise your options during that window, we'll do something that benefits us a lot and benefits you a little bit. So we're gonna lend you like 130 bucks. You bought the options. After we make a three X on our 130, we'll give you 70% and us 30. Then after you make, you know, two X the thing, we're 50, 50. Like they get really, you know, whatever they can negotiate. Um, happens. But normally the time that you would wire money to exercise your options in a perfect world is when it's cashless. So you've got an option to buy shares, you know, and, you know, Microsoft, and then they do an IPO and they ring the bell and your the share price is like $5,000. You have an option to buy it at $3. And so 
you just fill out the form. You don't wire three dollars times X number of shares. You just say how much are you selling, and then you know it's yours. And you pay tax on these things when that happens. So the original idea behind warrants and options was to avoid you hiring people and they've got to pay tax to the government at the time that they get a grant of equity, which is got a real fair market value price and an actual 409A valuation is what it's called. You're supposed to get a 409A like every year. And if you've not raised money in a while, you can get away with not doing it. Keep your 409A low. And there's people that'll pay like Indian bait, like over in India accounting firms who will give you any, any number you want. Whereas KPMG can't do that. Interesting. One more on this, then we're going to move to the next topic. Um, how do you get comfortable without charging fees for companies not drawing down? If you talk about like you said, a lot of your competitors do. How do we get comfortable with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 again, it comes down to the relationships we have with the, uh, with the, with the VCs, right? Um, ultimately, you know, we know that they're going to get another round of funding and we're probably going to renegotiate that loan anyways. And it's, it's, you know, because we get those warrants or the success fee in there as well. Right. So we're still going to get paid in some way if there is a, a change of ownership of that. Right. So, you know, it's, it, and it's, it's also what we do is bet, right. I mean, that's, that's, what we're chartered to do is to lend money. So uh, we put it out there and we get comfortable with the fact that you know, we don't have to draw it down one, because it helps us win business. Uh, and two, we're gonna get paid on the back end. I think it's because they can, they can afford it. They can afford to do it. Whereas the private venture debt guys like, yeah. look, I can't, I raise money. It cannot sit on the sideline and not make money for me and my investors. Whereas these guys were so big, like go back to that slide of how many billions of AUM they have. They, you know, they can use that money for other purposes. And, and it also shows you how competitive <coughs> venture debt deals have become. And you got to get people that you're like, look, if you're all the same, I'm giving it to Mark. We'll cross coach with my kids. Yep. Done. Well, that's really kind of what it comes down to. <laughs> yes, very competitive. And some people cannot afford to do it. They can afford to... Just wipe that out. It's a good segue into the relationships. Now you guys have been able to view my slide wait, wait. up here. Why don't we take a five minute break? Five minute break? Five minute break. no, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, and actually, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, but, um, you know, the, the portfolio managers and the relationship managers are different. Yeah. Um, you know, they're very nice. I got these books now. Are you looking away? Yeah. 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 Yeah
Wait, do you have a spreadsheet of portfolio management? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to put it out. It's really interactive. Would that be awesome if, like, you can get a spreadsheet and be like, all right, pull out the names. Yeah, just like, uh, long term. Long term. But I haven't seen any donations. Where are you from? Colorado. 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 There, you open back in a street. Like, start bringing blockchain. So you're just looking for like a list of names. Ultimately, I think. Yeah, we were talking about that. I mean, the truth is, I love the dispatch of us to go to people who are interested in Yeah. Interesting. Well, Colorado's happening. Yeah, we, we have an office out there. We're down here. Right. I have a check for boxes. So, I try shape. But, you know, I mean, so what we do. Like, you get there and they would come home slowly. The one with all the girls. So, so, you know, Unless you're typically either doing it financial, plans, cap tape, it's all these companies, right? And so, what our analysts do is they take that information, they pump it into these spreadsheets for our own system. system that has all the sheets. And you know, we do mothers, we do well if they the revenue grows, what's it gonna look like? If it doesn't grow, what's it gonna look like? You know, do all that, and then they help to prepare the packages. So again, like you know, what ultimately kind of as that person becomes experienced and confident, then start kind of start up credit contacts. Okay, this is the company we're bringing to you. This is what they do. This is what we're looking for. Right? So the idea is that you go from just being a number cruncher to being somebody who's still crunching numbers, but now you're kind of getting in front of the senior folks and they're getting to know who you are. And then ultimately, okay. you move on to I'm here. Clients, you're handling. Download the OWL OCR. Right, so, doing all that monthly reporting. Trust me. Hey, you guys said, what'd you do? It's pretty sick. Wait a second. What's going on? You know? um, so, and what's, I don't know. I just found it for sure. Said the whole thing about SQ numbers. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of my joke. But it's kind of Yeah. They're escrow sisters. Yeah. No. And they, they literally, I mean, because I've worked with them. I was a client. Yeah. <laughs> 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 What's the ADP? 
associate development program. Yeah. 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 I know. She ran out the entire club. Yeah, there's like 
another group on doing another couple of events together. And, you know, just from that one little party, now events or relationships are spiraling off of that, right? And, you know, one of the cool things about what we do is we get to have some fun. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it, right? We get to enjoy ourselves, you know, but it is work. And, you know, in having fun is part of how you build that relationship and how you build that trust, right? So, you know, good to have fun, but there's got to be some attention to it. So, you know, it's interesting. When I think about relationships, I really think there's kind of like, there's, there's a bunch of different kinds of relationships, but when it comes down to business, I really look at two categories, okay? There's the transactional relationship, okay? And we're all familiar with transactional relationships, right? How many of you have a phone? Oh, okay. How many of you know the person that sold you your phone? How many of you have talked to that person since they sold you your phone? Nobody, right? That's a transaction. I just want to go, hey, sell me a phone. Thank you. Boom, sell the phone. There was a relationship there, but it was all centered on this transaction. It was a one-time transaction. It was about getting the sale. And back in the old days of sales, back in the Glen Gary, Glen Ross days, in the used car sleazy salesman, you know, close the deal, close the deal. It's all about transaction, transaction, transaction. And I bring this up as a point of awareness. You know, how, what are your relationships like as you're working with your colleagues, your, your, your fellow students, with your professors, with the other people you're interacting with? Is it a transactional type of thing? Or is it moving more towards what I call strategic relationships? You know, so while transactional relationships are built for one-time transactions, they're designed to be quick and easy, there's not a lot of connection there. I work with a lot of people who, you know, for lack of awareness or whatever, kind of work very transactional, right? And maybe that's the way they're made. I don't know, but maybe they didn't have this class where they got to learn a little bit more about the strategic side of relationships. And if you look at what we've developed over a decade, it's a very, what I call strategic, you know? We focus on common ground, like, hey, our families, right? Lacrosse, you know? interest in startups, you know? And we focus on how can we add value to each other? You know, what can we do to make, what can I do to make your life a little bit better and how can you make my life a little bit better? You know, can I introduce you to some companies that might give you the opportunity to invest? You know, what are we doing? And, and these things take time to develop. They take time to develop these relationships. You can't get through this process of building relationships quickly. And I put it up there. It's the idea of know, like, trust, right? You kind of get to know people and, you know, great example in college where you're coming in every year, you meet new people, you get to know somebody over a little bit of time. You know, it takes time. Then you get to figure out, well, geez, do I like this person? You know, and if that like continues to grow a little bit, then maybe what evolves out of that is what these relationships are really all about, and that's trust. You know, that's trust. 
So when we're talking about those banking relationships that I was talking about, you know, going in and saying, hey, we're going to have to be a little bit tighter on that loan than we originally thought because you haven't hit your numbers. How can we work something out that's going to be beneficial for both of us? You know, there's trust underneath those things. And they're authentic. The relationships that, you know, are from the heart. You know, I that night that I just showed you, I stayed at his house. You know, I was hanging out with his two boys before they even got there, right? That's relationship. That's authenticity. That's being, you know, caring. Pacific West, Pacific West Bank could have afforded to put him in a hotel. Yeah, yeah, very easy, right? But you offered. I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And we got to stay up later, too. <laughs> so, you know, just be aware of that, right? As you're out there in the world, you know, what kind of relationships are you building? Not every relationship has to be a great relationship that's going to be go through no like trust. But the more of those kinds of relationships that you can build over time, the more impact, the more power, and the more success you're going to have, right? So really something to, to, to be focused on and be intentional about. Yes. Yeah, earlier you mentioned um, that you have experience coaching. So how do you think that, or how do you utilize that toward that coaching skill set toward uh, really growing that relationship and you know, something in that client relationship, you kind of have to guide them or coach them to what the right decision is. Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's a great question. I think, you know, again, it comes down to, you know, building trust, right? Like, you can't really coach somebody unless they trust you, right? And um, it's, it's something that you ultimately develop over time. So that ability to build the trust that a coach has is something that I think I bring to it as well. I was also an English teacher. And I'll tell you, I, I don't have time to tell the story, but I used to be the sleazy car sales guy. When I first started selling slick back hair, suits, and I was closing people. I learned how to close, I was close, 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 right? But I realized that wasn't really, that was a transactional thing, right? And when I was struggling and I wasn't feel, feeling too good about what I was doing, I went back to what I learned as a teacher, which made me good in relationships, which is I asked questions. Good questions, usually. I love when someone, I ask someone and they go, that's a great question. That's like, I, I feel good about that, right? But I listen to the answers as well. I'm curious, I follow up. I ask other questions, I listen. You know, and then I weave a few good stories in there every now and then to keep people interested, right? And so that idea of what works in coaching and teaching definitely works in building relationships, you know? I got this three question thing that I tell people about when they go to networking events, right? And I say, all you need is three questions and you can get to know a lot of people. And the first one, you're not gonna believe what it is. What do you do, right? I mean, if you've ever been to a networking event with people always, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And it seems like a kind of a ridiculous question to ask, right? But it's the second question where you start getting what I'm getting at. And that is, what do you do? I'm a VC. Really? How'd you get involved in that? And when you ask that question, 
what are you going to get? You're going to get a story, right? Somebody's going, well, I, you know, I did this, I did that, and then, wow, man, that's really interesting. Now you got that person talking about themselves, right? And then I'd always follow that up with, you know what, I talk to a lot of people out there. How would I know a good referral for you? And so then they start telling me about their business and who their ideal client is. And we start going and we start getting that whole thing going, right? So real kind of simple ways of, 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 of interacting. And I used, to, I used to challenge myself when I go to networking events. I go, I am going to leave that. Nobody's going to know anything about me, but I'm going to know a lot about everybody. And you know what? People, get, they kind of go, who's that Mark guy? Yeah, I don't know what he does, man. He's a good guy, man. He was like asking me all these questions and everything, right? And then they remember you because people don't remember what you say and they don't remember what you do, but they remember how you make them feel. That's Maya Angelou. And that's a big part of relationships. You know, I want to talk a little bit about jobs and relationships and, and you know, that was one of the things Andrew said, you know, and I've heard some of you have come up and asked me some questions about, you know, jobs. I know that's something that's on everybody's mind, right? Um, I think A, number one, as you're thinking about jobs is be thinking about relationships as well. Who do I know? Who have I built a relationship with that I might be able to leverage? Who's somebody that I can go out and ask that potentially could help me, right? And so, you know, if you're not on LinkedIn, you should be, okay? Because LinkedIn is where I go first for everybody. He introduces me to somebody, first thing I do, check him out on LinkedIn, right? So everybody in here should be on LinkedIn if you're not, okay? You know, it's a, it's a way and it's a platform to develop strategic relationships. And what's really valuable about that is it's your network, right? <laughs> So I've, had, I've worked for different companies. So I go to one company, I work there, I end. Guess what they do? They take my computer, they take all my contacts, and boom, because I've developed those there. But with LinkedIn now, I can build my whole network, and I can take that wherever I go with me. It's my network. I was telling some of these guys over here, I was one of the first 100,000 people to be on LinkedIn when I joined it back in like 2000. Five, they sent me some, I was like number 78. Um, you know, never be afraid to reach out to people on LinkedIn, okay? Because that's how you're gonna grow your network. And particularly if you come at it from the perspective of, I'm a student, I'm learning, can you help me? People wanna help, right? But every time you're asking somebody and you're reaching out to somebody on LinkedIn, don't just send them the connection and go, connect. Right? Put the effort into developing the relationship enough that you write a little message and try to find something that connects you. Hey, I see that we're connected by Andrew Romans. I'm in his entrepreneur class at Chapman. I thought maybe we might connect and you might be able to give me five minutes of your time to talk about something. If I got that, I'd go, cool. Boom. I get so many. LinkedIn invites where it's just somebody connect. If you take the time to do that little bit, then you're going that little bit of extra mile and people are going to notice it and you're going to start building that network. 
right? Any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for, for job search throughout your life, like, I'm sorry, dude, I didn't get you this job. I'm like, oh, I missed the opportunity. How could I not have been the one that placed you there to get you a little bit more in my day? You know what I mean? Like, it just should have happened. I feel, I, I, I literally am like, shit, I missed that opportunity. And, you know, the other thing is that people are talking to other people. And I used to think, like, you know, I went to China, and I thought, well, nobody here knows, knows who I am. I could behave badly in China, and it would never get back to me. I started hanging out in China a bit before the world declared kind of war on them. And I was like, oh, my God, these people know people. <laughs> like, that guy's an LP in Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, you know? And so another reason to not just help your sorority sisters or fraternity brothers, or like, I take an attitude of, um, if I got time, if I can make time, and I really don't have time for anything, I'll help somebody once or maybe twice. And if it turns out that they're, they seem to be a bad operator or they're not reciprocating, you know, I'll help somebody else. And, you know, like we've talked a couple of times, we keep dropping the name Roger Royce. Imagine, imagine someone didn't like Roger Royce here, you know what I mean? Like, you know, someone will tell you what they think about someone that they don't like. So I think the relationship thing is huge. And I had dinner with somebody on Saturday night with another family, Silicon Valley people in Austin. And um, I helped her get a job offer at VMware through a good buddy of mine. And she actually said, and she's originally from Hong Kong, she said, it never occurred to me to, to get a job through a friend. And I was like, the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> that is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Also, like, it says on our homepage, you know, part of what we do is we have a unique network of limited partners that can help you with staffing. And that's like one of the first things that we say we're there for. What's the first thing you do after you have money from venture debt and VCs is, we have to hire somebody probably, you know, and, you know, hiring people when you're, when you're growing at scale, there was a time like where we went from like very few to hundred employees quickly, where I was CEO. We had this one woman that was like a triple protected minority who was insane. I had like eight lawyers in the room when we fired her. And after that, I was like, no more hiring anybody who's not friends with somebody who works here now. Yeah. It's like, we put down a rule after her. Nobody gets a job offer here unless you're friends with somebody. There's enough of us to find somebody who's friends with somebody here. Yep. And that'll maintain a culture of this place is cool. Yeah. Well, there's, there's an old uh, VC adage that says, if you can't find somebody to introduce you to me, then I shouldn't talk to you. Yeah, a lot of VCs will say that on a panel. They're like, I receive, you know, 10,000 inbound startups seeking funding for me per year, I'm going to prioritize the ones that come from somebody I know. And if you can't create creative enough on LinkedIn to network a path to me, then don't bother. Yeah. Truth, truth is, I, I I invest all the time in companies that just find me. And I'm like, ooh, I'm yeah, the first but to but get they're, it. But they're working and then to find you. Yeah, well, yeah, they're working to find I mean, you. And they're they'd be smart out. if they went through somebody. You know, like I got a chapter in my first book that says, pitch lawyers before angels and VCs, you know, because because the lawyers know everybody if they're doing these deals. So here's my shameless plug. 
my bank, Pacific Western Bank, is seeking interns. And uh, it's something that uh, we have offices here. We got offices in the Bay Area. We got offices in Austin and Colorado and all sorts of places. So if it's something that you may be interested in, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. But guess what? You better write me a note. <laughs> you better write me a note. All right. So I want to say thank you. This is just a little picture that I chose to put up there that, uh, you know, the coach that we were saying about, but just a little something to maybe put a little red in the cheeks of my son up there. So, uh, but I want to thank you guys. I mean, this has been fun to be able to uh, talk to a group of folks like you. And Andrew, thanks for this opportunity. I mean, this has been fun. And, uh, you know, it's not always... Uh, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it means a lot because think of the trust level that needs to exist between us if he's going to say to me, hey, come talk to my class at chat, right? So I honor that trust and thank you much, man. Thanks, brother. Yeah.